Okay, a couple of announcements before we be begin. First of all, tomorrow, or next Monday night, for the Camp Arete Monday Night Bible Class, uh, Dr. Clay Ward, who's pastor of, Tulla, of uh, Playroma Bible Church in Tullahoma, Tennessee, will be doing an overview of the book of Revelation. Also, a reminder that this last Saturday, um, registration for the fall semester for Chafer Seminary began, and if you are part of West Houston Bible Church, then uh, you have the opportunity to take up to two courses. The, the, course, the tuition is free, but you have to pay a couple of fees. If you've never taken a course, I think you pay a $25 initial uh, fee, setup fee, and then there's another registration fee that's about uh, $20, $25, something like that. So it's really minimal. And then you can take uh, up to two courses each semester uh, if you wish to get course credit or you can audit. Starting in, um, just a reminder that in the spring term, I will be teaching uh, the history of Christianity, church history, and I'll teach in the spring and then the second half in the fall. So we'll go from the early church up uh, to the Enlightenment on uh, in the first half, and then we'll go from uh, the Enlightenment through uh, modern American church history in the second half, something, something like that. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? As we prepare to study God's word this evening, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by means of the Spirit, and that means that if necessary, we need to confess sin, and then God the Holy Spirit uh, God will forgive us and of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we recover that walk uh, by God, by or with God the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have you to turn to because you are our rock. You are our ever-present strength in time of trouble. You are always in control, overseeing the affairs of human history, the affairs of the nations, for you are the king of creation, and you are the ruler of the nations. And Father, we know that nothing happens without your permission, and you are allowing things to develop in our time that seemed to point to a soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that may not happen. It could not happen or may not happen for a number of decades. Uh, but, Father, in the meantime, we pray that we might be faithful. We pray that we might be a witness to those around us. We pray for our government. We pray for our president. We pray for the federal legislators and judiciary. We pray for the state judiciary, the governor, 
and the legislators all the way down to our local uh, mayors, city councils, school boards. Father, we need to have a nation that turns to you, but this nation is turning against you, has turned against you in many ways, and we pray that those who are believers and understand the truth will be able to shine forth as lights in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. Father, we pray that we might have peace, uh, domestic peace in our country, in our land, so that we may be about uh, the command of our Lord to go throughout the world to make disciples and to baptize uh, those who have uh, trusted in Christ and to teach and make disciples by teaching them to obey all that Christ taught us and what is taught in the New Testament. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to be faithful. These are not the kinds of times that we have ever seen in our life. Uh, No one has, and I believe that this is a time that we should all wake up and get extremely serious about our spiritual life and our walk with you. Father, drive these truths home to us as we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen. All right, tonight we are back in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 20, and we will wrap up with the last four verses. So you can open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 23, and we're going to look tonight at biblical justice. It just so happened in the providence of God and in Calvinistic luck that after dealing with social justice and biblical justice last week, as we go back into the text, we have an example of divine justice, which is uh, a counterpoint to this uh, notion that uh, Marxism has developed called social justice. It's an integral part of, inter- of, uh, of uh, cultural Marxism, and it is built on fallacious ideas such as uh, identity politics and intersectionality and a number of other factors that are uh, part of what's going on today. It's built on this idea that is completely fallacious, a complete distortion of history called uh, white privilege, and its goal is to overturn the Constitution. Its goal is to overturn uh, everything that the United States of America was founded on, and its goal is to overturn everything that we hold dear. It is, at its very core, anti-Christian, anti-Bible, anti-establishment, anti-American. And we just happen to see an example of what biblical justice is in the Scripture, and it is not anything like this uh, social justice that is the outgrowth uh, of Marxism. So we come to the last section, the last part of of uh, Samuel, and we'll uh, the, this begins it because the last four verses of chapter twenty deal with uh, David's leadership in the kingdom of Israel during the last period of his life. And so that it sort of serves in the structure here of the last part. The chapter division really should have come at the uh, between 22 and 23 because this sort of sets a stage, as we'll see when we, uh, when we go forward. What we have seen so far in our study of Second Samuel is that Samuel is written thematically. This is 
foreign to many ideas that we have of history. We think strictly in terms of chronology, and everything should be done in proper order. But so often the historical books of the Bible are not arranged in strict chronological order. Revelation at the end of the Bible is roughly in chronological order, but as we saw when we studied it, the scene shifts from the earth to heaven, back to the earth, and so within uh, each period of time there are different scenes in different areas, and so people get all confused. You can watch a TV show and understand when there are flashbacks and you understand when things are out of order, but for some reason when people sit down and read the Bible, uh, their brain seizes up and they forget how to how to read the Bible. And it's, it's not any different than reading or watching a movie that has a lot of flashbacks or different things of that nature. So what we see in the first part of of 2 Samuel, remember in 2 Samuel 1 you have David hearing the news about the death of Saul and Jonathan on Mount Gilboa, and then you see the establishment of his kingdom, first in Hebron, and then uh, after seven and a half years, the uh, other tribes unite under him, and he moves his capital to Jerusalem, and we see how God blesses David in, uh, th- through his reign. And then in the second part, we see that things were not all rosy as they appeared to be in those uh, first 10 chapters, that there were times of failure as there always are in personal lives and times of failure as there always are in governments. No government is perfect. No person who is in government is perfect. People are all sinners and they commit egregious sins. This is why our founding fathers uh, understood that they needed to have a system of government where there were checks and balances, where there were limited terms so that people were only elected to office for two years at a time or with the Senate. Originally, they were appointed by the states for a, a term of six years, and nobody looked at this as a career. It was a way of serving the country, and even up through recent history in the second half of the 20th century, you have an example of when President Harry Truman uh, finished his time in office. He was taken to the train station, and he and his wife caught the train back to Independence, Missouri. They did not have any Secret Service agents going with him. They did not have... Uh, any uh, group. He got back to independence. There's nobody there to meet him. There's not a big press crowd. They just went home, and he had a very limited pension, and they went back to private life. And that's not the way it is anymore, but it's the way it should be. That's when we had people in government, for the most part, that understood they were serving the people. Now, there were a lot of examples of those who had lost that, and finally, by the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s, we saw a huge transition. And in this country, everything really did change in the early part of the, of the, uh, of the 60s. Now we have a generation that thinks a government should be perfect. And what we see in the Bible always is that it shows that the leaders, the spiritual leaders, the people that God has called to service are, are not perfect. 
They're flawed. They have sins. They have failures, and in some cases, great failures. Yet yet God uses all of us, uh, despite our sins, despite our failures. But when it comes to government and leadership, we get this idea that leaders should be perfect. And David certainly was not perfect. He had some uh, egregious sins. And then because of those sins, God commuted the death penalty, which was what was required by the Mosaic law, but he did enact justice on David. He he was held personally accountable for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and attempt to cover it up by conspiring to have her husband uh, murdered, which was accomplished under the cloak of a battle. And that was and then God announced that there would be a fourfold judgment on him, and we followed that out with the death of the child, and then we saw the uh, incest between uh, Amnon and his half-sister Tamar, and then there was the revenge of Absalom when he killed Amnon, and then uh, Absalom's rebellion against David. So he he felt all of the horrors of his sin. That's divine institution number one, that Uh, human responsibility that we are accountable to God and God would hold us accountable and this is the outworking of the justice of God and it is individual and people are held accountable individually in contrast to this idea of social justice that looks at people in terms of socioeconomic or ethnic groups or gender groups and identifies minorities and says okay if you are a minority then it doesn't matter whether you are the poorest of poor Caucasians and you are at the bottom of the food chain in Appalachia, you still have white privilege and uh, you need to have everything taken away from you. And this is not biblical justice. Biblical justice deals with what each individual uh, develops on his own his his successes, his failures, his good decisions, his bad decisions are what he is held accountable for and so, in the second part of Second Samuel, we see that God does bring discipline on the life of David again, showing it is always about the individual that carried us up through chapter twenty where we finished with the rebellion of Shiva, and then we took about three or four lessons to look at what the Bible teaches about rebellion and authority and carried that through some historical examples and up to the present day and trying to understand this chaos that is going on in our country. Now we come to the third and last division of the book, six appendices, for lack of a better word, that evidence the greatness of the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapters 21 through 24. Now, why do we have these appendices? These are out of order. They are not in chronological order. In fact, with uh, some of them, we don't know exactly when they took place. For example, the first one we will look at today In chapter 21, we don't know exactly when that happened. The writer is coming back and he picks four episodes that summarize and characterize what God is doing through the life of David. Okay, so that's what's important here. We'll go through these in just a minute. 
but some people describe these as an epilogue. Others describe it as an aside at the end or uh, appendices, but they form an integral part of the writer's narrative. They're not something that's just added on at the end, like, oh, I forgot to tell these stories, so let me plug them in here now. Uh, there is a reason and a rationale for why it is done in this in this way. And we will see that as I go through the introduction, that God is demonstrating uh, through these events his grace to David, and he is exhibiting certain qualities in the life of David that are messianic. And by that I mean they foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, kings of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon, others coming along, were anointed by the priest. And the word for anointing in Hebrew is mashak. That's the verb. It's, the noun is mashiach, the anointed one. And so it's, it means to be uh, recognized and appointed for a particular task. And ultimately, they f the concept of the Mashiach, the Messiah, foreshadows the ultimate Messiah who would come to uh, deliver us, redeem us from slavery to sin. And so we see different elements in the life of David that depict that. And the one that we will see uh, tonight in chapter 21 is a picture of David as an example of a righteous judge who is executing biblical justice for uh, the Gibeonites. And that will help us to understand a little more about biblical justice versus counterfeit systems of justice that become popular in human history. So we have seven appendices here that I have listed uh, and they begin with the organization of the kingdom at the end of 2 Samuel 20, 23 to 26. Most people, uh, commentators, uh, students of the scripture identify six appendices, but then they just sort of leave 23 through 26 hanging between the Sheba rebellion and the episode with the Gibeonites. So I think that it fits uh, because it's showing how uh, David, as a uh, as the Messiah, as the leader, has an organization and structure for the for the way he rules, and it is uh, we don't, we're not given a lot of details, but we do see from it that there is a stability. It is ex very similar to an earlier list. And there's only a couple of differences, but it's designed to show that even after uh, all of the problems that resulted from David's sin and the rebellion with Absalom and the rebellion of Sheba, that the government is still together, it's still united, it's still stable, it's still functioning, it's still going forward. Uh, even though it has been shaken by these storms, it is still uh, solid, we still have the United Kingdom, and God is still blessing Israel. So the first uh, appendix is the organization of the kingdom in Second Samuel twenty twenty three to twenty six. 
And then the next is, the second one is the famine judgment is halted. Uh, There is a judgment in Israel that consists of a famine. David recognizes it. It has a divine hand behind it, and so he does what you should do. He goes and prays to God to seek his wisdom on what's going on and how do I handle it. The third is that God protects David from the sword, and we'll get to that next time in relation to this second war with the Philistines starting in verse 15 and going to the end of the chapter. The fourth appendix is in chapter 22. This is David's praise of Yahweh for his faithful deliverance of David. And what is distinct about 2 Samuel 22 is it is almost identical to Psalm 18. I looked at Psalm 18 in about 10 or 11 lessons. It's a long psalm. It's some 51 verses. And I looked at that when we were at the beginning of 2 Samuel because the when you look at Psalm 18, there is a historical note there that it is David's psalm thanking God for delivering him at the time of the death of Saul and Jonathan and giving him the kingdom. So when we get to when we look at Psalm 18, it's a standalone psalm, but it relates to that historical event that is what's going on in 2 Samuel 1. So I've already covered it. So when we get to uh, 2 Samuel 22, I'm going to try to summarize it in one night. I mean, that's only 51 verses. I've gone through all of Revelation in 45 minutes, so I think we ought to be able to get a good summary and reminder of that. And then we come to the fifth uh, uh, section, which is David's uh, last words is what it's called. It's really more of a last testament. His witness, he's reflecting upon God's blessing him with the Davidic covenant, and this is in Second Samuel 23, 1 through 7. And then there's a long list. I will not go through it name by name, verse by verse. It is a list of all of David's mighty men, and it describes how God has protected him through these men, but not just, uh, they're not just by happenstance. They have been well-trained and developed experience in the early days when they were being chased by Saul. And so this becomes a cadre of officers for David's army uh, during the period of his reign. And then we're going to come to the final episode in 2 Samuel 24, where David sins by uh, seeking a census. The issue there is he's not just counting the people that's been done before, it has to do with the mental attitude behind it, and it's a mental attitude of pride and self-reliance, and so God brings a judgment on on the nation, and then when David uh, confesses and deals with it, then the plague is halt, halted at the threshing floor of Aruna uh, the Jebusite. And that will be the site for the building of the temple. This is on Mount Moriah where Abraham had brought his son Isaac to sacrifice him. So we see this thread, how everything ties together uh, in the scripture. So let's look at this first little section, uh, 2 Samuel uh, 20, 23 to 26. 
It looks like just a list of meaningless names to most people. Oh, good, I'm reading my Bible through. I hit these four verses, it's just names. I can skip six verses and go to uh, the next chapter and catch up a little bit on my Bible reading. I know how people think. So we have 23 to 26, four verses. I said six by mistake, four verses. And we're, but this tells us about the nation and its organization. There are eight people mentioned. The first is Joab, or Joab, who is the general over the army, so that's the military branch. And then the second is Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, who is over the Carathites and the Pelathites. Now, they are mercenaries. They are descendants of Canaanite tribes that have joined with Israel, and so he is the commander over the uh, professional army of these mercenary troops. In verse 24, we hear of Adoram, who is in charge of revenue, so he's the head of the IRS, and Jehoshaphat, or the treasury, rather. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, is the recorder, so he is the one who is keeping the records of of the government. Uh, Shiva is a scribe. He would be working along with him, uh, recording the history. Uh, Zadok and Abiathar are the priests. They joint high priests. And Ira the Jarite was a chief minister under David. Now, it's interesting that this word for chief minister is the word when it's in the plural, it's Kohan. When it's in the plural, it's kohanim. It's applied to David's sons in parallel passages, uh, and normally that's translated priests, but that's not its purpose here uh, because we know David's sons weren't priests. So these are eight uh, that are mentioned here. And I want to take a minute to look uh, as we get ready to go into the next section is the structure that we see going through the last part of this of this book. Uh, it's a chiasm. Now, you know what I mean by chiasm. The chi is the uh, Greek letter X. Uh, if you came up through fraternities and sororities and got involved with the Greek stuff at college or university, they pronounced it chi. But in uh, Greek courses, we pronounce it chi. And so it looks like the letter X. And so I have put a letter X here. Uh, If you take out the right side, which I uh, marked with a dotted line, then you're left with just the left side of the structure. And so it's when you have two, three, four, uh, you can have as many as 10 or 20. I've seen people create huge charts on some parts of the Bible of these uh, chiasms that have something like like twenty or thirty elements to them, but the it's a literary device that structures something like a frame so that it has different parts, but it, they all point to the center as you can see from uh, from the two lines on the left they're pointing to the center notice there's there's nothing quite in the middle there, but the middle verse is Second Samuel twenty two fifty one, and this provides a thematic structure for these last six appendices. Uh, 
he, referring to God, this is the last verse in second, in that psalm of deliverance in Second Samuel 22. He is the tower of salvation to his king. That's David. God is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his Mashiach, to his anointed, to his Messiah, to David. Just so you don't miss the point, you have an appositional phrase at the end, to David and his descendants forever. This is obviously shows that this is a reflection on God's grace in giving the covenant uh, to David. Now, as we look at the this final section here in chapter twenty, I just thought I would put this chart up on the board. It was I don't know how well you can see it, uh, but I thought it was at least visible enough to catch the thrust here. There are. Uh, three places where you have a list of these government officials. Some people think it's a cabinet or a board like we have. Uh, They didn't have uh, boards or cabinets. You didn't have uh, these eight men coming together and sitting down at a table and making decisions and and, uh, somebody taking notes and coming up with a corporate board. That kind of thing didn't come along until the 19th century. What you have here are lists of the different... Uh, leaders of the different parts of government, and they would individually report to David, and they would counsel and advise David on the basis of their area of responsibility. Once again, you have an emphasis on personal accountability and responsibility due to an individual. So there are these are the offices on the left side. You have the commander of the army, You have the recorder who is taking the official uh, records. I'm not sure what the difference was between the recorder here and the uh, secretary or recorder here. They were probably dealing with different different aspects of uh, of the business of the government. You have the commander over the foreign enemies. Uh, You have the high priests up here. I skipped over them. And then they're identified in translation as David's chief ministers. And the Hebrew word there is kohanim. And you have the last category is only shows up in this last list is the um, one who is in charge of compulsory labor. These would be prisoners of war. Uh, those who had been captured uh, of the enemy, and now they they become uh, forced labor. Uh, the words that is used there has nothing to do with slavery, but they are uh, they are put into a position where they 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 can't get out of it. So they are being used uh, for that. Now, under in Second Samuel eight, you have a very similar passage at the beginning of David's reign and identifying who these uh, people are. The second list here is also a, is a parallel passage to uh, the one we're in in 2 Samuel 20. So you have a list there in 1 Chronicles 18, uh, 15 through 17. If you want to know the difference between Chronicles and Samuel and Kings, Chronicles is written after the return from Babylon to remind the people of the Davidic covenant, the significance of the line of David, and so it doesn't cover anything related to the northern kingdom. It traces the kingdom from David all the way up 
to the um, Babylonian captivity, to the fall of Jerusalem. And so there's a list there of, it's, in many cases, it's parallel, if not identical, to what's in Second Samuel. So we see a list there. So in all three lists, Joab is the commander over the, over the army. That shows stability, that, that despite all the things that have happened, you still have the same person in charge. Same thing with the recorder. This is, um, this is Jeho- Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is, uh, is listed there in verse, where is he? Um, he's listed in verse in uh, 20, verse 4. That's not right. That, it, that, I, cop, I took this out of uh, Henry Hoffner's commentary on First and Second Samuel, and I, I, I'm not sure why the verses were uh, out of order, but I think that's verse 24. Yeah, Jehoshaphat was, was a recorder and Shiva was a scribe. So that's, uh, that, that, that's the difference there. Uh, Jehoshaphat is mentioned in all three lists. Zadok and Ahimelech in the first two, and Abiathar in the uh, last one here in 2 Samuel 20, 25. You have Sariah, Shavsha, Shiva. These are all forms of the same name, so that's the same person. Uh, Benaiah uh, is listed over as commander over the foreign mercenaries in all three lists. And David's sons are the chief ministers in the first two lists. And then Ira the Jairite is listed in this third list in 2 Samuel 20. And then we have the introduction of Adoram, who is over the uh, compulsory uh, labor. So I just put that up there because what that shows is that there is a uh, consistency in the government. And that's the purpose for putting it here. Uh, some people think that, oh, David is weakened now, but this shows, no, David is not weakened now. He still has a strong government. It's stable. Not too much has changed uh, over the years. Now I'm going to go back to the uh, chiasm here for just a minute. And what we see here is uh, certain parallels. For example, at the beginning, there's a judgment. There is a famine. And this parallels what we find in the last chapter, in chapter 24. We have uh, also a famine. And there's a spiritual lesson because in both places, as David is facing a crisis in the nation, uh, what does he do? He goes to the Lord in prayer. He functions as the anointed king should function under the uh, ultimate kingship of God, and he seeks divine guidance to handle the problems. And so this is important for him. As a Messiah, as the anointed one, he is to function also as a judge. And in some cases, as we saw when he's taking the, uh, taking the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, that he functions as a royal priest like the order of of Melchizedek. And so as a anointed Mashiach king, he seeks God's uh, God's guidance. Now what we have to recognize and we look at both of these, their theme is injustice and biblical justice. 
that the standard in biblical justice is always God's word. What God has said. When we get into chapter 21 and look at this episode with the Gibeonites, it's grounded in what God had commanded Joshua to do when they entered into the land. It, it, the failure of Joshua to inquire of the Lord when the Gibeonites disguised themselves and came in and ran a con job on on Joshua, he failed because he did not inquire of the Lord. So there's a, com- a comparison here between Joshua, who didn't inquire of the Lord, and when this famine occurs, David does inquire of the Lord. Uh, uh, of the Lord. And we see that the issue here in determining what the just action should be in the case of the Gibeonites, it might not fit our concept of of justice, but we remember we always have to start with how God demonstrates what justice is. Now, the difficult thing in handling this particular episode is there's a lot that we're not told. Where there's a lot that is inferred and a lot that uh, is clear is indicated simply because uh, God says that that they have been uh, this has been a case of injustice, and so we have to trust that. But God has not given us us the de- details, so the issue isn't grounded in some idea that the Gibeonites are some uh, identity group that has been. Um, uh, taken advantage of and has been minimized and marginalized over the years. And so now what has to happen is that uh, the Jews have to make restitution to the Gibeonites. That's not what this is about at all. But I would imagine that some social justice warrior would come along and interpret it that way. What is going on here is that that there is there were specific commands given by God to Joshua Joshua failed to uh, seek God's counsel when the Gibeonites came up, and as a result of that, he had already ill-advisedly entered into a covenant with the Gibeonites, a covenant which Saul broke. Saul broke the law, and it didn't involve just Saul, as we'll see. It involved uh, a number of members of his family, and so they are now going to be held accountable for the decisions they made in going along uh, with Saul. And that's what biblical justice has to do with. It's, it's holding individuals accountable for the decisions uh, that they made. So the f- A categories, the famine and the pestilence, relate to David making decisions as the Mashiach. Then in the B categories, I identify them as sword one and sword two because the power of the sword is given to a government by God and that is the power to not only uh, make war in the defense of a nation but also to have uh, law enforcement officers who are on the ground Uh, protecting the citizens from criminals and from criminality. And when you have people going around wanting to defund uh, the police, this will only head in one horrible direction. And we're seeing examples of that 
in Portland and in Seattle and in Chicago where you do not have biblical justice. The law of the land is not being applied consistently by those who are in governmental office in those areas. And so this this is the problem. And they want to just make law up as they go along, and they're not allowed to do that. Those who serve the governments of this nation, whether it's a local government, a state government, or the federal government, are sworn to uphold the constitutions of the uh, uh, the city ordinances of the cities they serve, to uphold the state constitution and the state laws, and to uphold the federal laws. And unfortunately, because we are in a culture of antinomians, where we all are influenced by moral relativism, we have leaders in uh, state capitals, in cities, and as well as in the federal government, that think that they can just skirt the law if they don't like it. That's what they've been doing in their lives all the time. They make up the rules for their life as as they want. They don't hold the ethical standards. They do whatever they want to when they want to, and they think that if they can get away with it, it's okay. That is the thinking of a vast majority of our elected leadership today, and that is not justice. So that has led to a lot of corruption. It's led to a lot of mishandling of the courts. It's led to mishandling of uh, law enforcement agencies. And just like the rest of the country, you have those in law enforcement agencies. That's not as many as some people want you to think. But you have those who are in law enforcement agencies and in pulpits and in banks and in uh, elementary schools and high schools and colleges who are just rank antinomianism antinomians and and taking advantage of their positions and abusing people and that's wrong and that should not be allowed at any point but when you have a worldview in a culture that is uh, has as its ethic moral relativism you cannot expect biblical justice and the solution to offer as social justice is is one of the worst forms of injustice because it is designed just to support another power group. And so there's nothing righteous about it uh, whatsoever. You have to have uh, the power of the sword in the national government as well as uh, to protect from foreign enemies as well as in uh, city and state governments in order to protect Uh, from criminality. And so David is protected by his mighty men. He's protected in the war, this second war against the Philistines in the second half of this chapter. And then we have the list of how he honors these great men, these well-trained men, when it comes to the second part of chapter, uh, chapter 23. And then the centerpiece of all of this is what we see in chapter 22 and the first part of chapter 23 as David demonstrates his close relationship to the Lord. This is what God laid out in Deuteronomy, that when the nation got a king, one of the responsibilities of the king was to write out his own copy of the law. And the emphasis is that the king was supposed to 
uh, focus on his own spiritual life and his relationship to God in order to be able to rule the nation justly. And when the king was not right with the Lord, then there would be injustice, just as we saw with David and Bathsheba and Uriah and the consequences of that uh, from those very bad uh, bad decisions. And so we have gone through the organization of the kingdom and the uh, emphasis on that. And now let's uh, get into the first part of chapter 21. This is the first situation, the first appendix dealing with the injustice that went to the Canaanites as a result of Saul's disobedience to God. So we're told in 2 Samuel 21.1, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Now we don't know exactly when that occurred. It just says in the days of David. There are some who think it occurred towards the end of David's reign. There are others who think that it occurred uh, early in David's reign. What I found interesting was that those two or three writers that I looked at uh, that took a late view did not give any reasons for it. And they're men who are well-respected. The uh, Dr. Uh, Eugene Merrill, who wrote the commentary in the Bible Knowledge Commentary set on 2 Samuel, uh, takes that view. But Tom Constable, who was also a professor at Dallas when I was there, and has published a commentary on the whole Bible. He was both. Both men were, are very sound scholars, and they are wonderful examples of what Dallas Seminary was meant to be, and was at its uh, at its greatest. And uh, both of those men are now uh, in their middle to late 80s and retired. And uh, although Dr. Merrill, I know, I know he was in Houston a few years ago, and some of us went to see him when he spoke with a group from uh, Biblical uh, Bible Research and Associates at the Bible Museum. But uh, I understand that his health is not the greatest now, and I don't know about Dr. Constable. He's a free grace uh, guy. He's a real solid dispensational, traditional dispensationalist. And yet he takes the view that this is early in David's reign, and he provides some very good reasons for that that um, that would show up. That he says that it would be very odd for God to judge this issue some 30 to 40 years after Saul's death, to let that just fester and simmer for that long rather than taking care of it at the very beginning of David's reign not long after Saul died. I think that makes sense. It's a logical argument. It makes it makes sense, though. Uh, the other reasons are a little more concrete. He th- says that uh, we're told that Saul's concubine, Rizpah, now remember Saul is somewhat older than David, okay, so his... Um, concubine Rizpah would have been uh, older than David. She was the mother of two of the sons that will be executed in this chapter, and that she stayed outside watching over their bodies until the famine ended. 
If this were at the end of David's reign, then she would have been quite old. That's not impossible, but it's less likely. David used this particular occasion after these sons of Saul were executed to go to Jabesh-Gilead and to bring the bodies of Saul and Jonathan back from Jabesh-Gilead and bury all of the bodies together in the family tomb in Gibeah. That makes much better sense if that were to take place at the beginning of his reign, not long after Saul and Jonathan had been killed, than to, say, have them the, their bodies left up in Jabesh-Gilead for another 35 or 40 years. Then <clears throat> a fourth reason is that David... Uh, protected Jonathan's son Mephibosheth in this episode, which indicates that it's after the time when when, uh, Mephibosheth came under David's protection. And we saw that David first ruled for seven and a half years in Hebron, but then when he moved to Jerusalem, he sought out Mephibosheth. This Mephibosheth, there's two. Don't get them confused. This is Jonathan's son. He had entered into a covenant. That's a critical theme in this whole section is honoring a covenant, that he honored his covenant with Jonathan, that Jonathan's descendants would not be punished and there would be no vengeance taken on Jonathan's descendants. There's another Mephibosheth here who was hung. That was Saul's son. So Saul had a son named Jonathan, had another son named Mephibosheth, Jonathan had a son who he named after his uncle, Mephibosheth. So that's why there are two Mephibosheths. Don't don't get them them confused. And you probably shouldn't name any of your children or grandchildren after Mephibosheth. That's just too difficult. There's not enough room on forms to put that whole name. Um, So anyhow, that would indicate that this is not in the early period when David's in Hebron, but it would be early in that period when he first moves to Jerusalem, and he is seeking to bring peace between uh, himself and the uh, family of Saul, the descendants of Saul. And so that would put the date somewhat early in the or in the mid-990s uh, B.C., Now, in this episode, we have to go back to find out what is going on here because we're told that God is bringing a famine uh, on the land in David's time for three years. Now, if you've been to Israel, you realize that in the ancient world, there were times when they didn't have a lot of rain and everything's very dependent upon uh, the cycles. And so they've gone three years without rain and there's not... Uh, enough food food coming in for the crops. And so David recognizes that this is out of the norm now, so we have a famine. And what does he do? He inquires of the Lord. Now, we're not told how he does it. He probably went to the temple. He brought a sacrifice. He went went to the priest. He could have inquired of the law of the Lord through the use of the Urim and Thummim. Uh, We don't know. Uh, all we know is he inquired of the Lord and the Lord gave him a specific answer. And he said, it's because of Saul. It's not David's fault. David has not done anything to bring this about. Uh, it, it, and it, 
the fact that it's not of David and David would be going through this somewhat to me suggests the fact that that um, it's not during the period after Bathsheba. It would be before that. So it's probably in that first 10 years of his reign. It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. Now that's an interesting uh, term there. Uh, it is should be translated not bloodthirsty, but blood guilt. That's the idea there, blood guilt. And it is that he is guilty of taking innocent lives. Uh, this is a Hebrew idiom. It's interesting. Um, I've gone back to school this last six months to take first-year Hebrew. And it's kind of fun because I don't have to study or read or anything, but there's so many different little rules of word formations that you have to learn when you... I was talking to David Roseland about this because he did the same thing a few years ago. And uh, we were talking about this, and he said, yeah, it's so nice to go slow. It's one class a week, one hour a week, and you can really focus on understanding things. He said, you know, it's even too much to go through three hours in a, in a week. I said, David, I didn't do that. I did it in summer school. I did a semester in five weeks. It was six hours a day. It was intense, and you just couldn't absorb all the little rules and all the, all the minutia that you have to. So it's kind of fun. But we, we've been reading. From the very first class, you read some of the text. So it really teach, encourages the students to start reading the language from the beginning, be comfortable with it, which is very important. It's a, it's a very good way of teaching a language. But we were reading something in, um, in I think it was a passage in Genesis uh, the other day, and it used this same idiom. And the instructor explained what it was, that it had this idea of blood guilt, and it wasn't translated correctly uh, in, in a lot of places, it's just talking about being bloodthirsty or something of that nature, but it is a term related to justice. It's a violation of the law in taking someone's life. And Saul and his bloodthirsty house, his blood guilt house, that's his dynasty, his family. So right here, God is saying it's not just Saul, it was his whole family that during the time Saul is, uh, was king, they took advantage of the Gibeonites and they killed illegally, they murdered Gibeonites in violation of the covenant that Joshua had made with the Gibeonites. And so this, and the reason I bring that out is to show that this isn't, this judgment on Saul's sons and descendants is not uh, illegitimate and and that they too are responsible for, for what had happened. Now I want you to hold your place here and let's turn back to Joshua 9 and just do a quick flyover of what is going on uh, in Joshua 9. We look at Joshua 9, you know how I am, I like to get the context, so we go back to Joshua 8. Joshua 8 is one of the most significant dramatic events that happens after the Israelites cross over the Jordan and go into the land. And they, after their victory at Jericho, and then remember they go to Ai, and they come to Ai and they, uh, they fail. 
and they fail because one of the men, Achan, has uh, secretly taken booty from Jericho and buried it under his tent. And so this has tainted the nation. It's a sin for which the whole nation is going to uh, suffer the consequences because of the nature of the divine covenant uh, with God. So he's violating the covenant with God, and he's hidden this booty under his tent. And so when the Israelites first tried to attack Ai, they just get they just they just lose a lot of people. They just get their rear end kicked and handed to them. And they come back, and Joshua's all defeated. Everybody's all defeated, and they're saying, God's not with us anymore, and, and we're just a bunch of losers, and we're never going to get this land. Let's go back to Egypt. And they're just uh, whining and moaning about the whole situation, just like we do. And then um, God makes it clear that that's not the problem. The problem is you're harboring sin in the camp. This is what happens when God brings divine discipline on us as individual, that we've got a sin that we've got to deal with. And so God says that you're harboring sin in the camp. And so they go through this whole uh, scenario where they finally identify who, who the sinner is, and then he and his whole family are, are executed because of this sin. And that indicates that they were all in collusion. They all knew what was going on, and they violated the direct order of God not to take booty because God was going to show them that he would provide for them. So then after that, they go uh, into the land. When they finally defeat uh, and capture Ai, they go to Mount Ebal, which is just north of there. And I have, there we go, I have a map here. And here is Shechem, right here, Shechem. This is where Abraham built an altar to, uh, at Shechem, and then he went down to Bethel, which is located right about here. And this is the same area, Bethel's on this side of the road, and Eyes on this side of the road. And so they've come up from Jericho, they go to Ai, and now they go up to Shechem. And just on the west side of Shechem, there are two mountains, one on the south, one on the north. The one on the south is Mount Gerizim. The one on the north is Mount Ebal. And so there they are going to reconfirm the covenant with God. And so we see in the passages here that... Um, uh, that all of the leaders of Israel come together, verse 33, then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native born, the one born among them. So all of the Israelites are there, including the strangers among them, and they split and they put half the tribes on Mount Ebal and half on Mount Gerasim, and uh, Joshua reads the law to them, and when he comes to the blessings and the curses, one side is going to read the blessings and, and recite those, and the other side recites the cursing. This is going through Deuteronomy 29 and uh, Leviticus 26, the five cycles of discipline. The first part of that chapter is the 
the blessings. And so this is a covenant ceremony with God, which is the highest thing you can do to have this covenant. And they swear an oath of loyalty to God to follow the law. Now, that's important background because what happens is they're going to make a covenant that they shouldn't make in verse 9, and that is with the Gibeonites. And so as we um, look at Joshua 9.15, the Gibeonites come from, let me go back to the map, the Gibeon is right here. It's just to the northwest of Gibeon. It's like three miles away from where, where Saul grew up. And this is not very far. This is probably less than 10 miles from uh, Gibeon to Shechem. But they put on old clothes and they rub them and they make them look like, like they've been sleeping under a bridge for 10 years. And they take um, their food and they let it get all uh, moldy and the bread get hard and moldy. And they make it look like they have been on the road traveling for a long time. And they come and they uh, they put on old sandals and old clothes. And they come to Joshua in verse 6. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the, to the Hivites, that's what they were. They're part of the Canaanites in, this, in the uh, land that they're supposed to destroy. They're supposed to kill all of them. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us. How can we make a covenant with you? So at first they, they, they start off with suspicious, but the Gibeonites said to Joshua, we're your servants. Uh, and Joshua said, okay, where are, who are you and where do you come from? And they said, we come from a very far country, uh, because of the na- uh, we have come here because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. So it's another example of people using religion, using Christianity, or using uh, God's name to cloak their evil activities. You always have to watch out for that. Every t- time you hear a politician start talking about God, you better see what the rest of their life looks like to see if they even know who they're talking about. We do have some solid, very solid believers who are in our Congress and in our Senate from Texas. Right now, you should be praying for Louis Gohmert because he's been tested positive, although the last I heard, he's asymptomatic, but he's tested positive for COVID. He's a very strong believer. Uh, We also have Senator Ted Cruz, and I know that he is a very strong believer and very solid. And there's quite a few others from Texas and uh, from other parts of the country. Uh, but you have to always be careful because people will use religion to cloak uh, their evil intent. Uh, that's what Satan does. He's a counterfeiter. He goes about like a minister of righteousness, an angel of light. And so they're operating in that same manner, and they uh, lie to Joshua, and they say, oh, we've heard about the Lord your God and how, how devastating he was to the Egyptians and everything that he did to the uh, tribes on the other side of the Jordan, the Amorites and, the, uh, and those in Bashan. And he says, so we came here to, to make a covenant with you. 
look at this. Our bread was fresh when we left. Our, our shoes were brand new. Our clothes were uh, brand new, but now they're old. And, uh, <clears throat> and then in verse 14, we read, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Now, that is a very important uh, statement there. That's in verse, let me go back here to verse, I don't have 14 up here. That is a very important verse because what happens, uh, what happens is that the Israelites have eating, sitting down and eating a meal is, in, is part of what you do when you enter into a covenant. And so they're sitting down, they're having a fellowship meal with the Gibeonites, uh, which indicates that they're entering into a covenant, which is what is going to be said, and they don't ask counsel of the Lord. They don't pray about it. Up to this point, everything Joshua's done, he's always gone to the Lord in prayer, but he doesn't hear, and he makes peace with them and made a covenant with them in verse, verse 15, to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. So that's talking about the Israelites. They heard that they had uh, been conned and that these guys who claimed to have traveled a long way really were close neighbors and were from only about 15 uh, miles away, 10, 15 miles away from Gilgal. And so... Uh, now there is a problem. And so the Israelites go to check them out, and they go to their cities. And the Gibeonites had had four cities, Gibeon, uh, Chephira, Be'eroth, and Kiriath-Jerim, uh, which is down a little bit south, just outside of, of Jerusalem. So this is the area that we're looking at here. Now if we skip down to the first verse in the next chapter, we're given a little insight into this, or look at chapter um, uh, chapter ten, verse two. They, uh, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. So now, what happens is Israel's made a covenant with this very strong group that is right in their midst, and they're going to end up. Uh, compromising with them, and that will be a major problem. And so this is, um, uh, they're going to be enslaved to Israel, and Joshua and the rulers said to them, uh, they can live, but they will be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. And, um, and then in verse 25, it goes on to say, and now here we are in your hands. This is the Gibeonite speaking. We're in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do, good and right to do to us. So he, that is Joshua, did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. So that is is written probably before the time of Saul when he is uh, murdering them. So they are, uh, the house of Saul is guilty of murder of the Gibeonites, and that doesn't just mean Saul, that means others in the family. So the king calls them to get the Gibeonites together, and he talks to them, 
and and to find out just exactly what had happened. And they described that Saul had, at the last part of the verse, that Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of, of Israel. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? See, a good judge is going to get all of the information. So he says, what should I do for you? What is it that you want? Uh, and with what shall I make atonement? that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. The inheritance of the Lord, the word inheritance means possession, and that's an idiom for the children of Israel. Uh, What shall I do so that you will bless Israel? And it's interesting, the word for atonement is the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover, sometimes to cleanse. Uh, It's translated by the Septuagint, by the rabbis, as exhilaskomai, which means to propitiate or to make atonement. To propitiate means to satisfy. So David is saying, what do I do to satisfy you so that you will bless the inheritance of the Lord? And in verse 4, the Gibeonites said, we don't want payment. We don't want to take money from the house of Saul, uh, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do. And they answered him, as for the man who consumed us, that would be Saul, and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. Now, when we look at this, we ask the question, what exactly is going on here? And uh, why is this justice? It doesn't seem fair that these descendants of Saul would be uh, delivered. And we have to look at other passages of Scripture. Deuteronomy 5.9 says, You shall not bow down to them, that is, to idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Notice the last phrase, the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. That is, all four generations are guilty because all four generations hate God and have rejected God. So God is not saying, okay, your great-great-grandfather committed these sins and now you have to pay for them. In fact, the scripture says just the opposite. In Ezekiel 18.20, The soul who sins shall die. That's divine institution number one. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, not on his others, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Individual responsibility. Deuteronomy 24:16 Fathers shall not be put to death for their children nor shall children be put to death for their fathers a person shall be put to death for his own sin and then a passage i quoted last week when talking about divine institution number 1 Jeremiah 31:29 and 30 especially verse 30 everyone shall die for his own iniquity okay this is the point um that it's individual. So all of these men had participated in uh, the murder of the Gibeonites. And so it is important to recognize that this is not just something that 
uh, that David is doing to somehow satisfy them, but he is finding those who are guilty, who participated in some way, and so now they are going to uh, reap what they have sown, and there is going to be divine justice here. And so uh, we learn in uh, verse Verse 8, that David also, or back to, let's go back to verse 6, that David also shows grace to Mephibosheth. He takes seven of men of the descendants of Saul, and uh, they will be hanged. And then in verse 7, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them. That's a, con- a covenant. So we're seeing... David, as the Mashiach, is executing divine justice based on God's covenant with Israel, based on the covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites, and David honors the covenant that he made with Jonathan. So this is showing that the Messiah is a man who is just, and justice is dependent upon the standards of God's covenants and other contracts and covenants. So the king spared Mephibosheth, and then he takes, verse 8, he takes Armoni and Mephibosheth, that is uh, one of the Saul's sons, two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul. She's one of Saul's concubines. Uh, and then it says the five sons of Michal. Remember, she was David's wife, and then she married. Uh, an, uh, she was married off by Saul to a warrior, and at the end of her life, says she never gave birth to any children. So this isn't her. This is there's a textual problem here, and it should read the sons of Mira, another daughter of Saul whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he delivered them, so David delivers them into the hands of the Gibeonites. They hanged them all. They fell. The seven together were put to death in the days of harvest. And then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air. So they're left on. This is a sign of of the horror of what they had done, is that they are left to rot on the uh, on the tree, as it were. And this is a sign of their curse. In Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, they were not to leave a man uh, that they had hung on a tree overnight but there are some examples in the scripture where they did, and it was a sign of the, the, how horrible their, their sin was. And so she is out there, and then David is told about what, is, what she is doing, and so he goes, and he takes the bodies down, and he takes them, and he decides at the same time to get the uh, bodies, the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and they take them uh, to uh, Gibeah, where they are going to be buried in the tomb of Kish. And so they did all of that, and after that, this is the important line at the end of the episode, after that, God heeded their prayer for the land. Uh, It is clear from the beginning and the end that there is a guilt of bloodshed here 
that is imputed to uh, Saul's household, that they are all responsible, and the, the nation has to be cleansed of this sin, just as what happened with, with Achan in, um, in Joshua. And then once this sin has been uh, atoned for, then God listens to the prayer again. This is a great verse to remember because there's always people who will say, well, God always listens to everybody's prayer. Well, this is an episode where for a time in Israel, God was not listening to their prayers because of sin. So that's the first appendix. Next time we'll come back and look at the probably the next next one uh, is pretty short, and then we'll uh, get into Psalm Uh, Psalm 22. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to see your faithfulness to your covenant, see the importance of, of your word as being absolute, recognizing that justice must always appeal to an appeal to an eternal absolute and not to the relative conventions of uh, human beings. And father, we pray that you would restore true biblical justice to this nation And that means that we become a nation who consistently applies the law of the Constitution because that is our law code. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.